Part Three of Project Mastodon by Clifford Cimac. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three. General Leslie Bowers rose from his chair and paced up and down the room. He stopped to bang the conference table with a knotted fist. You can't do it, he bawled at them. You can't kill the project. I know there's something to it. We can't give it up. But it's been ten years, General, said the Secretary of the Army. If they were coming back, they'd be here by now. The General stopped his pacing, stiffened. Who did that little civilian squirt think he was, talking to the military in that tone of voice? We know how you feel about it, General, said the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I think we all recognize how deeply you're involved. You've blamed yourself all these years, and there is no need of it. After all, there may be nothing to it." "'Sir,' said the General, "'I know there's something to it. I thought so at the time, even when no one else did. And what we've turned up since serves to bear me out. Let's take a look at these three men of ours. We knew almost nothing of them at the time, but we know them now. I've traced out their lives from the time that they were born until they disappeared, and I might add that, on the chance it might all be a hoax, we've searched for them for years and we've found no trace at all. I've talked with those who knew them, and I've studied their scholastic and military records. I've arrived at the conclusion that if any three men could do it, they were the ones who could. Adams was the brains, and the other two were the ones who carried out the things that he dreamed up. Hooper was a bulldog sort of man who could keep them going, and it would be Hudson who would figure out the angles. And they knew the angles, gentlemen. They had it all doped out. What Hudson tried here in Washington is substantial proof of that. But even back in school they were thinking of those angles. I talked some years ago to a lawyer in New York name of Pritchard. He told me that even back in university they talked of the economic and political problems that they might face if they ever cracked what they were working at. Wesley Adams was one of our brightest young scientific men. His record at the university and his war work bears that out. After the war there were at least a dozen jobs he could have had, but he wasn't interested, and I'll tell you why he wasn't. He had something bigger something he wanted to work on, so he and these two others went off by themselves. You think he was working on a temporal—the army secretary cut in—he was working on a time machine, roared the general. I don't know about this temporal business. Just plain time machine is good enough for me. Let's calm down, general, said the J.C.S. chairman. After all, there's no need to shout. The general nodded. I'm sorry, sir. I get all worked up about this. I've spent the last ten years with it. As you say, I'm trying to make up for what I failed to do ten years ago. I should have talked to Hudson. I was busy, sure, but not that busy. It's an official state of mind that we're too busy to see anyone, and I plead guilty on that score. And now that you're talking about closing the project— It's costing us money, said the Army Secretary. And we have no direct evidence," pointed out the J.C.S. chairman. "'I don't know what you want,' snapped the general. "'If there was any man alive who could crack time, that was Wesley Adams. We found where he worked. We found the workshop, and we talked to neighbors who said there was something funny going on, and—' "'But ten years, general! 
the army secretary protested. Hudson came back, bringing us the greatest discovery in all history, and we kicked him out. After that, do you expect them to come crawling back to us? You think they went to someone else? They wouldn't do that. They know what the thing they have found would mean. They wouldn't sell us out. Hudson came with a preposterous proposition, said the man from the State Department. They had to protect themselves, yelled the general. If you had discovered a virgin planet with its natural resources intact, what would you do about it? Come trotting down here and hand it over to a government that's too busy to recognize— General. Uh, yes, sir, apologized the general, tiredly. I wish you gentlemen could see my view of it, how it all fits together. First there were the films, and we have the word of a dozen competent paleontologists that it's impossible to fake anything as perfect as those films. But even granted that they could be, there are certain differences that no one would even think of faking, because no one ever knew. Who, for example, would put lynx tassels on the ears of a saber-tooth? Who would know that young Mastodon were black? And the location. I wonder if you've forgotten that we tracked down the location of Adams's workshop from those films alone. They give us clues so positive that we didn't even hesitate. We drove straight to the old deserted farm where Adams and his friends had worked. Don't you see how it all fits together? I presume, the man from the State Department said nastily, that you even have an explanation as to why they chose that particular location. You thought you had me there, said the general, but I have an answer, a good one. The southwestern corner of Wisconsin is a geologic curiosity. It was missed by all the glaciations. Why, we do not know. Whatever the reason, the glaciers came down on both sides of it and far to the south of it, and left it standing there a little island in a sea of ice. And another thing, except for a time in the Triassic, that same area of Wisconsin has always been dry land. That and a few other spots are the only areas in North America which have not, time and time again, been covered by water. I don't think it necessary to point out the comfort it would be to an experimental traveler in time to be certain that, in almost any era he might hit, he'd have dry land beneath him. The economics expert spoke up. We've given this matter a lot of study, and while we do not feel ourselves competent to rule upon the possibility or impossibility of time travel, there are some observations I should like at some time to make. Go ahead right now, said the JCS chairman. We see one objection to the entire matter. One of the reasons, naturally, that we had some interest in it is that, if true, it would give us an entire new planet to exploit perhaps more wisely than we've done in the past, but the thought occurs that any planet has only a certain grand total of natural resources. If we go into the past and exploit them, what effect will that have upon what is left of those resources for use in the present? Wouldn't we, in doing this, be robbing ourselves of our heritage? That contention, said the AEC chairman, wouldn't hold true in every case, quite the reverse, in fact. We know that there was, in some geologic ages in the past, a great deal more uranium than we have today. Go back far enough and you'd catch that uranium before it turned into lead. 
In southwestern Wisconsin there is a lot of lead. Hudson told us he knew the location of vast uranium deposits, and we thought he was a crackpot talking through his hat. If we'd known—let's be fair about this—if we had known and believed him about going back in time, we'd have snapped him up at once and all this would not have happened. It wouldn't hold true with forests either, said the chairman of the JCS, or with pastures or with crops. The economics expert was slightly flushed. There is another thing, he said. If we go back in time and colonize the land we find there, what would happen when that—well, let's call it retroactive—when that retroactive civilization reaches the beginning of our historic period? What will result from that culture collision? Will our history change? Is what has happened false? Is all—that's all poppycock!" the general shouted. That and this other talk about using up resources. Whatever we did in the past, or are about to do, has been done already. I've lain awake nights, mister, thinking about all these things, and there is no answer, believe me, except the one I give you. The question which faces us here is an immediate one. Do we give all this up, or do we keep on watching that Wisconsin farm, waiting for them to come back? Do we keep on trying to find, independently, the process or formula or method that Adams found for traveling in time? We had no luck in our research so far, General," said the quiet physicist who sat at the table's end. If you were not so sure, and if the evidence were not so convincing that it had been done by Adams, I'd say flatly that it is impossible. We have no approach which holds any hope at all. What we've done so far you might best describe as flounder. But if Adams turned the trick, it must be possible. There may be, as a matter of fact, more ways than one. We'd like to keep on trying. Not one word of blame has been put on you for your failure, the chairman told the physicist. That you could do it seems to be more than can be humanly expected. If Adams did it, if he did, I say, it must have been simply that he blundered on an avenue of research no other man has thought of. You will recall, said the general, that the research program, even from the first, was thought of strictly as a gamble. Our one hope was, and must remain, that they will return. It would have been so much simpler all around, the State Department man said, if Adams had patented his method. The general raged at him, and had it published all neat and orderly in the patent office records, so that anyone who wanted it could look it up and have it. We can be most sincerely thankful, said the chairman, that he did not patent it. The helicopter would never fly again, but the time unit was intact, which didn't mean that it would work. They held a powwow at their campsite. It had been, they decided, simpler to move the camp than to remove the body of old Buster. So they had shifted at dawn, leaving the old mastodon still sprawled across the helicopter. In a day or two they knew the great bones would be cleanly picked by the carrion birds, the lesser cats, the wolves and foxes, and the little skulkers. Getting the time unit out of the helicopter had been quite a chore, but they finally had managed, and now Adams sat with it cradled in his lap. The worst of it, he told them, is that I can't test it. There's no way to. You turn it on and it works or it doesn't work. You can't know till you try. That's something we can't help," Cooper replied. 
The problem, seems to me, is how we're going to use it without the whirlybird. We have to figure out some way to get up in the air, said Adams. We don't want to take the chance of going up into the twentieth century and arriving there about six feet underground. Common sense says that we should be higher here than up ahead, Hudson pointed out. These hills have stood here since Jurassic times. They probably were a good deal higher then and have weathered down. That weathering should still be going on, so we should be higher here than in the twentieth century. Not much, perhaps, but higher. Did anyone ever notice what the altimeter read? asked Cooper. I don't believe I did, Adams admitted. It wouldn't tell you anyhow, Hudson declared. It would just give our height then and now. And we were moving, remember? And what about air pockets and relative atmospheric density and all the rest? Cooper looked as discouraged as Hudson felt. How does this sound? asked Adams. We'll build a platform twelve feet high. That certainly should be enough to clear us, and yet small enough to stay within range of the unit's force field. And what if we're two feet higher here? Hudson pointed out. A fall of fourteen feet wouldn't kill a man unless he's plain unlucky. It might break some bones. So it might break some bones. You want to stay here, or take a chance on a broken leg? All right, if you put it that way. A platform, you say? A platform out of what? Timber. There's lots of it. We just go out and cut some logs. A twelve-foot log is heavy. And how are we going to get that big a log uphill? We drag it. We try to, you mean. Maybe we could fix up a cart, said Adams, after thinking a moment. Out of what? Cooper asked. Rollers, maybe. We could cut some and roll the logs up here. That would work on level ground, Hudson said. It wouldn't work to roll a log uphill. It would get away from us. Someone might get killed. The logs would have to be longer than twelve feet anyhow, Cooper put in. You'll have to set them in a hole, and that takes away some footage. Why not the tripod principle? Hudson offered. Fasten three logs at the top and raise them. That's a gin pole, a primitive derrick. It'd have to be longer than twelve feet. Fifteen, sixteen, maybe. And how are we going to hoist three sixteen-foot logs? We'll need a block and tackle. That's another thing, said Cooper. Part of those logs might just be beyond the effective range of the force field. Part of them would have to, have to, mind you, move in time, and part couldn't. That would set up a stress. Another thing about it, added Hudson, is that we'd travel with the logs. I don't want to come out in another time with a bunch of logs flying all around me. Cheer up, Adams told them. Maybe the unit won't work anyhow. End of Part 3